We've been burrowing down the back of our sofa this month and found music from the 18th century, poetry from the 21st century, an antiques expert and quite a lot of fluff. Ample filling for this, the comfortable October edition of the Worcester Talking Magazine. Loosely connected by the notion of furniture, gathered round our antique table in the studio today are Catherine. Hello. Phil. Hello. Jane. Hello. And me, Pippa. Now, furniture isn't just a collection of objects for bumping into. Tables and chairs and clocks on the mantelpiece are as much a part of our existence as the clothes we wear or the food we eat. Laden with symbolism, the items with which we choose to furnish our lives reveal our personalities, our aspirations for the future, and memories of our past. For many, the family table is the heartbeat of the home. The ritual of setting the table provides a small piece of real estate for each person. This is your plate because you matter. Utensils, a napkin, a cup are placed before your seat because you are loved. You belong here. The family table is also the place where homework is completed, bills paid, card games won and lost, where arguments flare and forgiveness is expressed. Hearts are broken and mended here. Whatever the shape of the family table, we are nourished within its geometry. A table is much more than just a place to eat, as Joy Harjo writes in her poem, Perhaps the World Ends Here. The world begins at a kitchen table. No matter what, we must eat to live. The gifts of earth are brought and prepared, set on the table. So it has been since creation, and it will go on. We chase chickens or dogs away from it. Babies' teeth at the corners, they scrape their knees under it. It is here that children are given instructions on what it means to be human. We make men at it. We make women. At this table, we gossip, recall enemies and the ghosts of lovers. Our dreams drink coffee with us as they put their arms around our children. They laugh with us at our poor, falling-down selves and as we put ourselves back together once again at the table. This table has been a house in the rain, an umbrella in the sun. Wars have begun and ended at this table. It's a place to hide in the shadow of terror, a place to celebrate the terrible victory. We have given birth on this table and have prepared our parents for burial here. At this table we sing with joy, with sorrow. We pray of suffering and remorse. We give thanks. Perhaps the world will end at the kitchen table while we are laughing and crying, eating of the last sweet bite. Jane. Philip Larkin's Mr Bleeny is a work of three voices. Larkin himself, a prospective lodger, and the landlady of the accommodation, whose furnishings provide sufficient clues to illustrate in sepia tones the life of the room's previous tenant, Mr Bleeny. His habits, his work life, his diminished aspirations and all-round lack of impact upon anybody around him. Perhaps it is arguable that the poem symbolises Larkin himself. That is, despite his reputation as a great poet, 
he remained insular, with little desire to promote himself, melancholic and enthused by very little, even if his interest in jazz records could be counted the exception. The reference to the bodies in line two is allegedly to do with a car assembly plant where Mr Bleeny is presumed to have worked. Larkin was born in Coventry in 1922, which became the epicentre of vehicle manufacture in the 50s and 60s. The poem was written in 1955. Larkin subsequently adopted Hull as his home, where he worked for 30 years as a university librarian, which seems suitably apt for a person so singularly undemonstrative. This was Mr Bleeny's room. He stayed the whole time he was at the bodies till they moved him. Flowered curtains, thin and frayed, fall to within five inches of the sill, whose window shows a strip of building land, tussocky, littered. Mr Blaney took my bit of garden properly in hand. Bed, upright chair, 60-watt bulb, no hook behind the door, no room for books or bags. I'll take it. So it happens that I lie where Mr Bleeny lay and stub my fags on the same saucer souvenir and try stuffing my ears with cotton wool to drown the jabbering set he egged her on to buy. I know his habits, what time he came down, his preference for sauce to gravy, why he kept plugging on at the four aways, likewise their yearly frame, the Frinton folk who put him up for summer holidays, and Christmas at his sister's house in Stoke. But if he stood and watched the frigid wind tousling the clouds, lay on the fusty bed telling himself that this was home, and grinned and shivered, without shaking off the dread that how we live measures our own nature, and at his age, having no more to show than one hired box, should make him pretty sure he warranted no better. I don't know. The piano is a paradox. It's a musical instrument, but it's also a piece of furniture. There are grand pianos for performance and the concert platform, but upright, oblong-shaped pianos are first and foremost designed for small spaces, enabling many people to learn to play. The piano is a percussion instrument, but in classical music at least, the challenge for the pianist is to achieve a singing line. Even the name, pianoforte, meaning soft loud, brings together opposites. While the classical repertoire of piano music is beautiful and extensive, the piano has also been the ubiquitous accompaniment to parlour songs, hymns and school assemblies, for example, and has been used extensively in jazz music. In a book called The Piano Shop on the Left Bank, T.E. Carhart recounts how the sheer popularity of the piano reached its height at the end of the 19th century. When the Eiffel Tower was built in 1889, the first artefact to be hauled to the small room at the top was a piano, a small playel upright, reflecting the futuristic structure's blend of engineering and art. 
During the 19th century, a vast quantity of popular music was written for the piano, and most of it was played for entertainment in the home. The piano came to be regarded as one of the indispensable accomplishments for women of the new middle class. Carhart goes on to say, Some idea of the piano's prevalence in polite society can be gleaned from Oscar Wilde's comment at the end of the century. I assure you that the typewriting machine, when played with expression, is not more annoying than the piano when played by a sister or near relation. Indeed, hearing or overhearing someone playing can be a mixed pleasure, especially when the player is a learner tackling scales. But the evocative sound of a piano through an open window, in the next room, or on the radio perhaps, is more often a distinctively emotional experience. The child in the passage I'm about to read is drawn to the mystery of the piano's sound. He writes, We lived south of Paris in Fontainebleau, where my father was assigned as a staff officer at the headquarters of the Allied forces. I was the fourth of five children and my parents had the good sense to send us all to French schools. I started at an ancient establishment known as the Institution Jeanne d'Arc and it was there that I met my first piano teacher. Madame Gaillard was an old widow, invariably dressed in a shapeless black dress with a shawl pulled round her shoulders in every sort of weather. She came to the school on Thursday afternoons to give lessons on the old playel upright that sat in the school's salon. The only details of that piano that I remember are the double brass candelabra affixed to the front panel over the keyboard. Their holders were always coated with melted wax, although I never saw them bearing candles. Walking down the long corridor that led past the salon and out to the cobbled courtyard, I would overhear Madame Gaillard's lessons. Her pupils were generally older girls. Playing the piano was even then something that girls de bonne famille were expected to be reasonably familiar with, if not to master, as they might also ride horses or embroider. In those days we had no school on Thursday afternoons, although we were obliged to attend on Saturday mornings, so Thursdays had a special air of freedom and play. I was five years old when I first became aware of this marvellous activity that sent music down the hall and out into the schoolyard. Occasionally, I would stop at the door of the salon and listen. And it was in this attitude that Madame Gaillard came upon me unawares one day. I had thought that she must be inside, but apparently one of her students was practising while waiting for the teacher to arrive. That's nice, isn't it? I was so startled that I couldn't speak so I nodded dumbly with an embarrassed smile on my face. Come see me in a quarter of an hour if you like. I thought I was to be punished, or at least reproved for eavesdropping, but her manner had been kindly, so I couldn't be sure what was in store. When the school bell chimed three, I knocked on the door of the salon, and Madame Gaillard said loudly, Oui, entrez! The rest of this first meeting is shadowy to me, it was as if I'd been hypnotised and shown into a room, a whole world, really, that held secrets both beautiful and mysterious. I remember being surprised that I was not scolded for standing outside the door. Instead, Madame Gaillard invited me to sit down on the velvet-covered stool that was drawn up to the keyboard and to play a few notes. Gently, she made me understand that if I wanted to learn to play the piano, it would be possible, so long as my parents agreed. From that day, I had a short lesson with Madame Gaillard every Thursday at three.
One of D.H. Lawrence's best-loved poems is Piano, which he wrote in 1918. Softly, in the dusk, a woman is singing to me, taking me back down the vista of years till I see a child sitting under the piano in the boom of the tingling strings and pressing the small poised feet of a mother who smiles as she sings. In spite of myself, the insidious mastery of song betrays me back till the heart of me weeps to belong to the old Sunday evenings at home with winter outside and hymns in the cosy parlour, the tinkling piano our guide. So now it is vain for the singer to burst into clamour with the great black piano appassionato. The glamour of childish days is upon me. My manhood is cast down in the flood of remembrance. I weep like a child for the past. D.H. Lawrence, cast back to his childhood. Debussy's first arabesque was played there by the pianist Gelutz. A popular children's fantasy novel written in the 1950s, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe was the very first written of the seven Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. It has been enjoyed by generations, not only as a talking book, but also in versions for the stage, television and the cinema. With illustrations by Pauline Baines, the first chapter of the printed version is entitled Lucy Looks Into a Wardrobe. Once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund and Lucy. This story is about something that happened to them when they were sent away from London during the war because of the air raids. They were sent to the house of an old professor who lived in the heart of the country, ten miles from the nearest railway station and two miles from the nearest post office. He had no wife and he lived in a very large house with a housekeeper called Mrs MacReady and three servants. Their names were Ivy, Margaret and Betty, but they do not come into the story much. He himself was a very old man with shaggy white hair which grew over most of his face as well as on his head and they liked him almost at once. But on the first evening when he came out to meet them at the front door he was so odd looking that Lucy, who was the youngest, was a little afraid of him and Edmund, who was the next youngest, wanted to laugh and had to keep on pretending he was blowing his nose to hide it. As soon as they had said good night to the professor and gone upstairs on the first night, the boys came into the girls' room and they all talked it over. This is going to be a wonderful place for birds, said Peter. I should go to bed now. I say, let's go and explore tomorrow. You might find anything in a place like this. Did you see those mountains as we came along? And the woods? There might be eagles. There might be stags. There'll be hawks. Badgers, said Lucy. Foxes, said Edmund. Rabbits, said Susan. But when the next morning came, there was a steady rain falling, so thick that when you looked out of the window you could see neither the mountains nor the woods, nor even the stream in the garden. 
Of course it would be raining, said Edmund. They had just finished their breakfast with the professor and were upstairs in the room he had set apart for them, a long, low room with two windows looking out in one direction and two in another. Do stop grumbling, Ed, said Susan. Ten to one it'll clear up in an hour or so, and in the meantime we're pretty well off. There's a wireless and lots of books. Not for me, said Peter. I'm going to explore in the house. Everyone agreed to this, and that was how the adventures began. It was the sort of house that you never seem to come to the end of, and it was full of unexpected places. The first few doors they tried led only into spare bedrooms, as everyone had expected that they would. But soon they came to a very long room full of pictures, and there they found a suit of armour. And after that was a room all hung with green, with a harp in one corner. And then came three steps down and five steps up, and then a kind of a little upstairs hall and a door that led out onto a balcony, and then a whole series of rooms that led into each other and were lined with books, most of them very old books, and some bigger than a Bible in a church. And shortly after that, they looked into a room that was quite empty except for one big wardrobe, the sort that has a looking-glass in the door. There was nothing else in the room at all, except a dead blue bottle on the window sill. Nothing there, said Peter, and they all trooped out again, all except Lucy. She stayed behind because she thought it would be worthwhile trying the door of the wardrobe, even though she felt almost sure it would be locked. To her surprise, it opened quite easily, and two mothballs dropped out. Looking into the inside, she saw several coats hanging up, mostly long fur coats. There was nothing Lucy liked so much as the smell and feel of fur. She immediately stepped into the wardrobe, and got in among the coats, and rubbed her face against them, leaving the door open, of course, because she knew that it's very foolish to shut oneself into any wardrobe. Soon she went further in, and found there was a second row of coats hanging up behind the first one. It was almost quite dark in there, and she kept her arms stretched out in front of her, so as not to bump her face into the back of the wardrobe. She took a step further in, then two or three steps, always expecting to feel woodwork against the tips of her fingers, but she could not feel it. This must be a simply enormous wardrobe, thought Lucy, going still further in, and pushing the soft folds of the coats aside to make room for her. Then she noticed that there was something crunching under her feet. I wonder is that more mothballs, she thought, stooping down to feel it with her hand. But instead of feeling the hard, smooth wood of the floor of the wardrobe, she felt something soft and powdery.
and extremely cold. This is very queer, she said, and went on a step or two further. Next moment, she found that what was rubbing against her face and hands was no longer soft fur, but something hard and rough and even prickly. Why, it's just like the branches of trees, exclaimed Lucy. And then she saw that there was a light ahead of her, not a few inches away where the back of the wardrobe ought to have been, but a long way off. Something cold and soft was falling on her. A moment later, she found that she was standing in the middle of a wood at night-time, with snow under her feet and snowflakes falling through the air. Lucy felt a little frightened, but she felt very inquisitive and excited as well. She looked back over her shoulder, and there, between the dark tree trunks, she could still see the open doorway of the wardrobe and even catch a glimpse of the empty room from which she has set out. She had, of course, left the door open, for she knew that it's a very silly thing to shut oneself into a wardrobe. It seemed to be still daylight there. I can always get back if anything goes wrong, thought Lucy. She began to walk forward, crunch, crunch, over the snow and through the wood towards the other light. And if that music reminds you of a musical box, it's no coincidence, as John Plush has been getting into musical boxes recently. So what can that cacophony possibly have in common with this? This particular journey of discovery begins with church bells, not unlike those bells to be found in our own cathedral here in Worcester. Back in the middle of the 17th century, when the carillon was popular in the church towers of northern Europe, they used to employ a musician called a carillonneur to play specific tunes at specific times of day. The bells the carillonneur played were situated high up in the church tower and struck by a system of hammers linked by ropes to a row of levers arranged in the form of a primitive keyboard, which the carillonneur played like a piano, well, with his fists. With the carillon bells up in the tower next to the church clock, it wasn't long before the idea occurred to someone to link the two mechanisms, so that the carillon played its tunes automatically in synchronisation with the time displayed on the clock without the intervention of the carillonneur. Just what the 17th century carillonneurs thought of this, my researchers have yet to reveal, but the mechanism they came up with consisted of a giant rotating cylinder covered in little spikes or pins which alternately caught and released the ropes that were attached to the bells, thus making them sound in a particular order playing a recognisable tune. The pins could be rearranged into different patterns to play different tunes. Thus, the cylinder, which couldn't make any sounds on its own, held the instructions, as it were, to the bells. And it was the job of the carillonneur now merely to rearrange the pins, to change the bell's instructions. In his new role, not of musician, but more like that of a computer programmer. (laughs) 
a continental carillon would have had between 23 and 78 separate bells in its armoury, whereas English church clocks traditionally have a similar but far simpler arrangement consisting of just four bells, but that's sufficient to render the well-known Westminster chimes of Big Ben. It was the Swiss watchmaker Antoine Favre-Salomon who took the design to a new level. Street level, to be precise. And between 1770 and 1796, he miniaturised the mechanism right down to fit into a snuff box, or even a gentleman's pocket watch. This is how an 18th century snuff box would have sounded to its well-heeled owner as he took a nostril full of tobacco. An interesting variation on this design was the brainchild of another Swiss watchmaker, Pierre Jacquet Drault, in Geneva. Not much bigger than a snuff box, the Singing Bird box featured a set of bellows, driven by a watch mechanism and connected to a whistle to mimic a bird call. A cylinder arrangement similar to that of the carillon and the snuff box changed the notes and controlled the movements of the included miniature model bird. The larger and more conventional music boxes, that is to say those not containing a range of automated livestock, instead of bells or bird whistles for the musical notes, relied on tuned metal strips lined up into something resembling a metal comb, the teeth of the comb being plucked by the pins on the revolving cylinder. The longer the tooth, the lower the note. By now, the musical box was physically large enough to be classed as an item of furniture, and so that it was not restricted to just the one tune, often incorporated storage for several different cylinders, each cylinder representing a different tune, rather like a modern record collection. This is a 72-note musical box made by Charles Roge in the middle of the 19th century. It differs from its predecessors in that it has sufficient pins on one cylinder to play 15 different tunes, which the owner can choose between by adjusting a lever. The lever shifts the cylinder from side to side along its axis, allowing different sets of pins to engage with the teeth of the comb. Throughout the 19th century, the musical box consolidated its popularity and moved away from cylinders to discs, which were more easily interchangeable. Compared to cylinders, discs were not only easier to manage and change, but cheaper to create as well. Thus, music boxes became more affordable, and therefore available, to a wider audience. Discs could be created faster, so consumers could purchase the latest tunes from their favourite composers more readily. Companies such as Symphonion, Regina, Polyphon and a host of others all based in either Germany or Switzerland controlled the music box scene and paved the way for a format war where one manufacturer's discs would not work on another manufacturer's machines. Does that sound familiar? A huge threat to the future of the musical box came with Edison's game-changing invention of the cylinder phonograph. Now this machine could record live performances of real musicians, including singers. 
opening the door, of course, to the huge present-day commercial recording industry, of which the humble talking magazine must be counted a small part. At its inception, though, the phonograph produced appalling, almost unrecognisable results. It was more of a novelty than entertainment. But the principle of the musical box was waiting in the wings, ready and willing to be adapted to allow musicians to record their performances in a way that could preserve almost complete fidelity. That's Scott Joplin playing his composition Maple Leaf Rag. Not recorded with a microphone onto a phonograph, but mechanically onto a roll of paper. For this is a pianola. The tuned metal comb of the musical box now replaced by a full-sized conventional upright piano, which employed a mechanism whereby a live piano player, in this case Mr Joplin, could sit at the keyboard and play through a composition, and every time he hit a note, the device punched a corresponding hole in a long piece of paper on a roll that moved along at a constant rate. Encyclopaedia Britannica tells us, Patented in 1897 by an American engineer, E.S. Voti, the pianola, or piano player, was a cabinet that was stationed in front of an ordinary piano and had a row of wooden fingers projecting over the keyboard. In the cabinet, a paper roll passed over a tracker bar that activated the release of air by pneumatic devices that set in motion the wooden fingers that struck the notes on the keyboard. Later, the mechanism of this cabinet was built into the body of the piano. Soon to be called the orchestrion, the automated pianola began to expand, incorporating real automated orchestral instruments, including percussion and strings. In the dance halls and fairgrounds of the early 20th century, the orchestrion threatened to do away entirely with the need for live musicians. But while the orchestrion was being developed into a real threat to live performers, Edison's cylinder phonograph was also being taken up and improved by Alexander Graham Bell. Improved to the point where the phonograph leapfrogged the orchestrion in the field of home entertainment. And by the 1930s, commercial analogue recordings made on 78 RPM shellac discs had rendered the musical box effectively dead. But the concept behind the automated carillon and the musical box, where it's only the instructions that are sent to the orchestrion's instrumental battery, lived on. And today it's very much alive, right at the centre of the 21st century's music recording industry. For with the advent of computers and electronic means of making sounds, many of which are pretty much identical to the sounds made by conventional acoustic instruments, came the concept of MIDI. Now, MIDI is an acronym that stands for Musical Instrument Data Interface, a protocol which allows a computer to keep a record of which notes I press on an electronic keyboard, along with how hard I play them and how long I hold them down, just like the pianola used to and to pass these instructions to an electronic sound-producing device. So if I play these three notes on my electronic keyboard, while my computer is attached to an anonymous electronic box that makes piano-like sounds, it sounds like a piano. But the computer has only recorded the information about the notes I hit 
like the carillon cylinder, it hasn't recorded the sounds of the piano, merely the instructions to make them. I can replay those same instructions through a different anonymous box that sounds like, say, a trumpet, and those three notes come out sounding very different. These days, I can play my recording of those three notes selecting almost any sound I like. And if I connect my MIDI computer to an anonymous electronic drum box, each different key on my keyboard will produce a different untuned percussive sound. For example, if I play a middle C instead of... I'll get the sound of a snare drum. A C-sharp translates into a cymbal. It's as if some wag had replaced the whole metal comb in the musical box with the contents of a teenager's bedroom. You remember that row we started with before? Well, that represents the string of instructions to play a short piece of music, which you'd probably recognise if we sent them not to a drum set, but to a tuned metal comb, like in a 17th century musical box. It's the same principle. And if we did, it would sound like this. It's that tune again. It was at almost exactly the same point in history as the first tiny musical box was invented that a huge piece of decorative furniture, if we can call it furniture, was being made for a stately home in Worcestershire, the travelling tapestry of Croom. Phil. It was never really intended to be a mobile wall hanging. That was simply the fate that befell it, and it's what defines its interest to us. Its story begins back in the early 1760s. At that time, George William, the sixth Earl of Coventry, was giving his house, Croom Court in Worcestershire, a fashionable upgrade. The red brick walls were covered in honey-coloured bath stone, an extension was added to each wing of the property, and a number of eminent designers were asked to bring taste and beauty to the interior. Out went the old wooden panelling, and, for the room which demands our attention, Robert Adam was asked to produce a scheme which would include the walls being hung with tapestry. This would be ordered from the famous Gobelin manufactory in Paris, which the Earl visited in 1763, despite the fact that there was a war on between England and France, and several times subsequently. The tapestry's design and colouring would be in the hands of the well-known painter Boucher, it would be red damask in its overall colour scheme, featuring ovals in which classical figures would be portrayed, including Venus, Vulcan, and, a nice local touch, Pomona, the Roman goddess of fruit and orchards. It would cover all four walls of the room, and its hanging at Croom was a major undertaking. In June 1771, the Earl received a bill from Inson Mayhew for the installation, involving three men who used 10,000 tacks, 2,000 clout nails and a further 2,000 tinned tacks. Details of the cost do not survive, but one estimate puts it at around £1,200. That's about 35 years' wages for a skilled craftsman, effectively a lifetime in the 1770s. Paper case hangings made of linen were also provided to protect the tapestry when the house was not being used. Later, chamois leather coverings were employed and thus the wonderful colours and details were preserved. 
The tapestry was the jewel of the court's refurbishment, viewed by countless visitors, including George III and Queen Victoria. But by the end of the 1800s, the future of the tapestries was in jeopardy. Agricultural depression had reduced the family's income and, fatally, the ninth earl's son, the Viscount Deerhurst, was an adventurer. He once found gold in Australia and an inveterate gambler. Worse than that, he was an awfully unsuccessful gambler. On one occasion, he wrote from Monte Carlo to an agent admitting that he had lost, quote, a very foolish bet in which he had been swindled but nonetheless felt obliged to pay some £1,500. Would the agent get cuts, Deerhurst's bankers, to find the money? He was declared bankrupt in 1890, including a debt of some £17,000 to a moneylender. The Earl, his father, decided, after paying off Deerhurst's debts yet again, that money would have to be raised and that the sale of the tapestry would be the most effective way of doing that. He had spent his time protecting his house and his estates, and this eventuality must have been heartbreaking for him and for the Countess Blanche, his wife. Deerhurst objected strongly, accusing his father of selling his inheritance. Acrimonious letters were exchanged, lawyers were engaged, but the Earl was determined to proceed, committed as he was to the bigger picture of safeguarding the house and estate. Ultimately, Deerhurst was disinherited and a trust set up to ring-fence the family's possessions. But for the tapestry, its connection with Croom was severed and it was sold in 1902, together with some furniture, to a dealer back in France for £50,000. They were shown in Paris by the American firm the Wildenstein Galleries and exhibited in New York in 1934. They had one more journey to make, this time a short one across New York to the Metropolitan Museum. Here they were stored until 1948, when the Samuel H. Cress Foundation aware that the Coventry family was selling Croom and its contents, entered into a remarkable arrangement whereby it purchased the entire fixtures and fittings of the tapestry room and donated them to be reconstructed within the museum. The tapestry was finally reunited with its matching armchairs and settees which were recovered in tapestry and with Robert Adams' fireplace, chimney piece with its inset lapis lazuli tablet, plaster ceiling, mahogany doors, floorboards, skirting boards and window shutters. In return, the agreement undertook to replace those fittings, ceilings, doors, etc., at Croom, with identical pieces, as the house had been purchased by the Roman Catholic Church to serve as a boys' school. Should we regret the loss of the tapestry? In some ways we should. On aesthetic grounds, we have lost an item of great beauty and historical importance. And yet, the room which was designed with so much care and expertise by the 6th Earl, Robert Adam, and Boucher, the tapestry's designer, is again intact, each part enhancing the whole as was intended. And, as we know, art follows money, money follows power and influence. As French wealth declined in the 18th century, Britain's rose. In the last century, Britain's sway gave way to the USA. We can only wonder if the tapestry's travels are yet over. Well, that sounded a bit like a detective story, Phil. Where do you get your information from? I got it mostly from the Samuel H. Crest Foundation, Pippa, and Catherine Gordon, who wrote what is effectively the standard guidebook on Croom. Music now. Played on an instrument, many examples of which are almost as decorative as the Croom tapestry itself, the harp. Meredith McCracken, fresh from the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, plays exclusively for the Talking Magazine... Arioso by J.S. Bach. Mm-hmm. 
We'll be hearing more from Meredith later. Coming up in part two, we have an interview with TV auctioneer Philip Serrell, a new word search from John Plush, and a specially written and performed experimental mini-drama featuring a kitchen drawer. But first, a short ghost story in which an inherited writing desk offers two newlyweds more family history than they bargained for. The Davenport by John Stanbury is read by Barney Burnham. It belonged to my great, 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 Philip counted on his fingers, great aunt. It's called a Davenport. Her husband gave it to her as a wedding present. She kept it until the day she died, barely let it out of her sight, they say. Teresa regarded the old Victorian writing desk with a mixture of appreciation and horror. Appreciation of its undoubted quality, its antiquity and its ornate Victorian design, but horror at the thought of finding a place for it in what was frankly their modern shoebox of a house. It's not going to match any of our other furniture, she mumbled carefully. It was kind of your mum and dad to pass it on to us, but where on earth can we put it? You mean, where in this house can we put it, corrected Philip. We can't ditch it. It's been in the family for over 150 years. Hmm, is there space in our bedroom? You're joking. The only place in there is against the long wall, and that's where the bed has to be. She took a breath. How about in that alcove under the stairs, then? Possibility. It's a nice piece. It's our best bit of furniture, laughed Teresa. It'll be the first thing visitors see when they come in. OK, agreed Philip. Under the stairs it goes. Oh, and there was something else. Philip raised the lid and lifted out the framed formal photograph of a young Victorian woman seated in an orangery, staring fixedly back at the camera, her hands crossed demurely on her lap, and wearing a long white dress. It's her, said Philip. In her wedding dress by the looks, observed Teresa. She frowned. Did they have colour photos in those days? It's hand-tinted, very popular then. Right, Teresa nodded thoughtfully. And where are we going to put that? Hang it above the Davenport, suggested Philip. It'll make a useful talking point. And so it did. At the housewarming, it was the first thing their guests commented on. One guest was so taken with it that he studied it for several minutes. Phil, he called over, this photograph, your great-great-great-aunt. One more great, Alan, a Victorian lady, I understand. Great-great-great-great, muttered Alan slowly. Wow, where was it taken? Looks like a huge conservatory in Orangery, maybe. Probably her family's when she got married. They weren't sure to cash then. I don't think her side had such a lot. I think the money was all his from what I can gather. Sadly, their marriage didn't last long. He died within the year. He had lots of health problems. Heart, kidneys, other stuff. Finally, his lungs must have packed in because he died from some form of asphyxiation. Nasty, commented Alan, edging still closer to the photograph. Good for our side of the family, though. She inherited a fortune. Ha! <laughs> laughed Alan. Where's all that gone, then? Quite, said Philip. It was a long time ago. What is it? Alan was lifting the photograph down from the wall. May I? he asked. Sure. Have you noticed this? He carried it over to the hall light. See, there in the background, there's a mirror. Uh-huh. 
You can see the back of your aunt's dress and a chair and all. Oh, yes, and the photographer, observed Philip. What, a photographer with no camera? That's not the photographer. He's out of the frame. No, this is some other bloke. They've given him ginger hair, he chuckled. Philip looked more closely. Strange he hadn't noticed it before, but there, with his back reflected in the distant mirror, a figure could be clearly seen standing behind his great-great-great-great-aunt. That's odd, he said. There's a reflection of someone standing right next to Auntie, but he's not actually there in the frontal view. How does that work? Alan shook his head. Beats me. Looks like his hand's resting on his shoulder, he added. But there's no hand on your aunt's shoulder seen from the front. That's really weird. After the party, Philip mentioned the discovery to Teresa. Don't be daft, she grinned. It's far too dark in that alcove to see anything. Let's move it up to the landing beneath the skylight where we can see it properly. With the picture now hanging on the wall of the bright and airy landing, even Teresa had to agree that it was somewhat spooky and couldn't think of the perfectly rational explanation that she claimed there must be. Within a few days, Philip was checking on the internet to find out how much the Davenport might actually be worth. Just out of interest, he explained to Teresa. Sometimes there's a maker's mark on the back or somewhere. Increases the value. I'm going to check it out. You're not selling it, warned Teresa. She'd become quite fond of her in-law's writing desk. No, 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 of course not, backpedalled Philip. I just, just want to see, that's all. Philip pulled the Davenport out of the alcove into the hallway and began to examine it closely. I can't see anything on the back or underneath, maybe inside. He opened the lid, but again found nothing. Check the drawers, he muttered under his breath. But the four drawers revealed nothing either, and now the bottom drawer wouldn't go back in properly. Philip tried to ease it back into place, but something was jamming it. He crouched down really low and saw what it was. A small brass catch was sticking up from the drawer runner. Something to do with stopping it sliding out accidentally, he supposed, and pushed it down. There was a faint click, and the back wall of the drawer dropped forward, revealing a compartment behind. Lord, he said out loud, and went to find a torch. There was something in there. I saw it on the internet, he told Teresa. These old Davenports do sometimes have a secret compartment, but I didn't expect ours. Is there anything in it? She interrupted. There was. This. And Philip showed her what he'd found. Wrapped in an old piece of linen was a very small fabric doll, no more than three or four inches high. It was dressed as if in a black suit and had had bright orange hair woven crudely into the material of its head. It also had several large hairpins pushed deep into its torso. Teresa was wide-eyed. Victorian voodoo. Looks like it, he answered. One by one, Philip eased out the pins. And what's that round its neck? asked Teresa. Just string, I think. It's knotted really tight. Have you got a pair of tweezers or something? In the bedroom, said Teresa. I'll go. And she ran upstairs. But before she had time to reappear, Philip had got the string loose and removed it from the doll's neck. I've done it, he called up. Teresa's voice quavered. Philip, can you come? 
she called down faintly. He dropped the doll and ran up the stairs two at a time. Teresa had her hand on the banister rail to steady herself while staring at the picture on the wall. Look, she whispered, her eyes fixed on the photograph of the young bride seated in an orangery with her red-headed husband now standing directly behind her, his hand lightly resting upon her shoulder, his forefinger brushing her neck. Barney Burnham scaring the socks off us in John Stanbury's The Davenport. I wonder if Jane has discovered any ghosts in the furniture of the 1920s designer Lucien Ercolani. Jane? Well, there are none in mine, anyway. Um, Ercol furniture is something we all either bought, grew up with, or know someone who has a chair, a table, or perhaps a sideboard or a dresser. This is a British furniture manufacturer and the firm dates back to 1920, when it was established in High Wycombe, Buckinghamshire, as Furniture Industries by Lucien Ercolani, who lived from 1888 until 1976. Lucien wanted to make furniture that was well-designed and made in a good working environment by craftsmen who really took pride in their jobs. He drew for his inspiration on time-proven local design and craft in the Chiltern Hills around where he lived. Ercolani moved to London's East End from Italy with his parents thanks to help from the Salvation Army. He left school to become a messenger boy, although he continued playing in the Salvation Army brass band. And it was while he was out and about running errands that he came across a poster advertising a furniture design course at the Shoreditch Technical Institute, a career his father supported since he had worked as a picture frame maker in Florence and was working as a carpenter for the Salvation Army. So, in 1920, Ercolani decided to start his own furniture factory, launching Furniture Industries with backing from some local businessmen. In 1932... Ercolani took over Water Skulls, a respected firm of high-class chairmakers, giving him the opportunity to further expand. During the Second World War, the company made tent pegs, munition boxes and other supplies, with Ercolani's sons serving in the RAF. The company also made 100,000 Windsor kitchen chairs as part of the utility scheme set up by the Board of Trade. In the 1940s, because of the shortage in raw materials, the utility furniture scheme was set up to ensure that scarce materials were used in the best way. In fact, I still have a piece of furniture in my study which holds all my towels and bed linen. A utility furniture catalogue was set up to show what was being made. In 1956... Urkel bought out the studio couch, which was designed to serve as a sofa and a single bed for house guests when required. This featured the by now characteristic steam-bent arms with the back made from elm and the rest from beech. This furniture really has stood the test of time, with the 60s, 70s and 80s items becoming fashionable again and no doubt sought after as a relief from flat pack. Most of its competitors from the 1950s and 60s 
only exist as brand names now, whereas Urquhall is still family-owned and run, and its factory in Prince's Risborough is just a few miles down the road from its original base at High Wycombe in Buckinghamshire. While sitting relaxing in one's Urkel armchair, one might wish to pass the time with a brain teaser. John Plush has one. This is another of those word search games where you're invited to listen for particular words hidden in a spoken passage. Here are the names of two leading characters from popular fiction hidden in a news item. As to the identity of the foreign perpetrator of this latest outrage, the British police have yet to uncover, let alone inspect, a clue, so they are currently seeking to work with Interpol. Dark times are indeed upon us. The characters' names hidden in that passage were Inspector Clouseau, the incompetent detective featured in the Blake Edwards Pink Panther films, and, of course, Winston Graham's Dark. I'll read it again, but this time I'll put a just after each name. As to the identity of the foreign perpetrator of this latest outrage, the British police have yet to uncover, let alone inspect, a clue, so they are currently seeking to work with Interpol. Dark times are indeed upon us. This next piece may sound like an excerpt from one of Winston Graham's books, but that's only a cover for ten items of furniture hidden amongst the dialogue. I should warn you that it's also an excuse for probably the worst Cornish impression you're ever likely to encounter. If you can penetrate the appalling accent, you should be able to detect the first six words. They are sofa, chaise longue, writing desk, cushion, curtains and dining table, all nestling amongst the text, which, as usual, has nothing to do with furniture. Sofa chaise longue, writing desk, cushion, curtains and dining table. Here goes. Judd watched his wife stroking the old cart horse. So for pulling a cart, she's all right, but she's long overdue for a service, he grumbled. And the horse, he added ruefully. Prudy ignored him. You may be right in desk case, Judd Painter, but if you're expecting her to last the winter, you must be cuckoo. Shouldn't be long afore it's curtains for the poor thing. You mark my words, that beast is getting ready to die and in table to work proper no more. Did you get all six? You're listening for sofa, chaise long, writing desk, cushion, curtains and dining table. Now, if you want to hear the passage again, press your track back button. That's the leftmost of the three. Here's the passage again, with a after each item of furniture. Judd watched his wife stroke the old cart horse. So for pulling a cart, she's all right, but she's long overdue for a service, he grumbled. And the horse, he added ruefully. Prudy ignored him. You may be right in desk, ace, Judd Painter, but if you're expecting her to last the winter, you must be cuckoo. Shouldn't be long afore it's curtains for the poor thing. You mark my words, that beast is getting ready to dine in table to work proper no more. Sofa and curtains, not too difficult to spot. Some of the others a little tricky. Let's move on and finish the piece. Still in Cornwall, ish, but this time we're listening for Chesterfield, hat stand, Welsh dresser, and TV stand. Chesterfield, hat stand, Welsh dresser, and TV stand. 
Stumbling back across the yard, Judd spoke out loud. She'll be glad to have got that off her chest, or feel better for it with a bit of luck and won't give me no more lip. Can't you control your own wife, man? George Warleggan stood before him. And what on earth is she wearing? She looks ridiculous in that riding hat. Stand aside, get out of my way. Well, stress is for herself, not for me, muttered Judd. Where's your master? continued Warleggan, flicking Judd's ear with his riding crop. I have a mind to ruin his political career this morning. Twill be a pity if he stands for Parliament again. Chesterfield, hat stand, Welsh dresser, and TV stand. If you want to hear it again, press your track back button now. Here it is again with the pings. Stumbling back across the yard, Judd spoke out loud. She will be glad to have got that off her chest or feel better for it with a bit of luck and won't give me no more lip. Can't you control your own wife, man? George Warleggan stood before him. She looks ridiculous in that riding hat. Stand aside. Get out of my way. Well, stress is for herself, not for me, muttered Judd. Where's your master? continued Warleggan, flicking Judd's ear with his riding crop. I have a mind to ruin his political career this morning. Twill be a pity if he stands for Parliament again. Sorry, Winston. Yeah, Shays Long overdue for a service indeed. Catherine knows lots about the Shays Long. Well, Catherine knows bits about the Shays Long. I have no idea how many people have Shays Longs nowadays. I did have an old dusty one in a rented student room at one point, and very uncomfortable it was too. Basically, a Shays Long is a version of a sofa designed for one person to recline on while supported by a higher padded corner at one end. And reclining is the key here. The chaise longue was ideal for someone who was semi-invalid, as it enabled them to join in with family and social occasions while sitting up in bed, as it were. We're often encouraged to think of women in the 19th century as being overprotected, to the extent that constraints on their physical activity helped to weaken them. Some of them, in fiction and in life, ended up reclining on the chaise longue, or sofa. But even in the 19th century, this was a phenomenon that was a cliché, as the following passage from Barchester Towers that I'm going to read indicates. Anthony Trollope published this novel in 1857. The newly appointed bishop and his wife, Mrs Prudy, are giving their first party. People were to arrive at ten. Supper was to last from twelve till one, and at half past one, everybody was to be gone. Carriages were to come in at the gate in the town and depart at the gate outside. They were desired to take up at a quarter before one. It was managed excellently, and Mr Slope was invaluable. At half past nine, the bishop and his wife and their three daughters entered the great reception room, and very grand and solemn they were. Bishop, said the lady, as his lordship sat himself down, don't sit on that sofa, if you please. It's to be kept separate for a lady. The bishop jumped up and seated himself on a cane-bottomed chair. A lady, he inquired meekly. Do you mean one particular lady, my dear? Yes, bishop, one particular lady, said his wife. 
disdaining to explain. She's got no legs, Papa, said the youngest daughter, tittering. No legs, said the bishop, opening his eyes. Nonsense, Netta, what stuff you talk, said Olivia. She has got legs, but she can't use them. She has always to be kept lying down, and three or four men carry her about everywhere. Laws, how odd, said Augusta. Always carried about by four men. I'm sure I shouldn't like it. But who is it, Netta? whispered the bishop to his youngest daughter. La signora Madeline Vesinaroni, whispered back the daughter. And mind you don't let anyone sit upon the sofa. La signora Madeline Vicinaroni, muttered to himself the bewildered prelate. The next bit is much later. At last, a carriage dashed up to the hall steps with a very different manner of approach from that of any other vehicle that had been there that evening. A perfect commotion took place. The doctor, who heard it as he was standing in the drawing room, knew that his daughter was coming and retired into the furthest corner where he might not see her entrance. Mrs Prudy perked herself up, feeling that some important piece of business was in hand. The bishop was instinctively aware that La Signora Vicinironi was come at last, and Mr Slope hurried into the hall to give his assistance. He was, however, nearly knocked down and trampled on by the cortege that he encountered on the hall steps. He got himself picked up as well as he could and followed the cortege upstairs. The signora was carried head foremost, her head being the care of her brother and an Italian manservant who was accustomed to the work. Her feet were in the care of the lady's maid and the lady's Italian page. And Charlotte Stanhope followed to see that all was done with due grace and decorum. In this manner, they climbed easily into the drawing room and a broad way through the crowd having been opened, the signora rested safely on her couch. She'd sent a servant beforehand to learn whether it was a right or left-hand sofa, for it required that she should dress accordingly, particularly as regarded her bracelets. And very becoming her dress was. It was white velvet without any other garniture than rich white lace worked with pearls across her bosom and the same round the armlets of her dress. Across her brow she wore a band of red velvet on the centre of which shone a magnificent cupid in mosaic, the tints of whose wings were of the most lovely azure and the colour of his chubby cheeks the clearest pink. On the one arm, which her position required her to expose, she wore three magnificent bracelets, each of different stones. Beneath her on the sofa and over the cushion and head of it was spread a crimson silk mantle or shawl which went under her whole body and concealed her feet. Dressed as she was and looking as she did, so beautiful and yet so motionless, with the pure brilliancy of her white dress brought out and strengthened by the colour beneath it, with that lovely head and those large, bold, bright, staring eyes, it was impossible that either man or woman should do other than look at her. Neither man nor woman, for some minutes, did do other. And now, quite soon... The signora's brother Bertie decides that the sofa is not sufficiently centre stage. Take care, Madeline, said he, and turning to the fat rector, 
added, just help me with a slight push. The rector's weight was resting on the sofa and unwittingly lent all its impetus to accelerate and increase the motion which Bertie intentionally originated. The sofa rushed from its moorings and ran halfway into the middle of the room. Mrs Prudy was standing with Mr Slope in front of the Signora and had been trying to be condescending and sociable, but she was not in the very best of tempers, for she found that whenever she spoke to the lady, the lady replied by speaking to Mr Slope. Mr Slope was a favourite, no doubt, but Mrs Prudy had no idea of being less thought of than the chaplain. She was beginning to be stately, stiff and offended when, unfortunately, the caster of the sofa caught itself in her lace train and carried away, as no saying how much of her garniture. Gathers were heard to go, stitches to crack, plaits to fly open, flounces were seen to fall, and breadths to expose themselves. A long ruin of rent lace disfigured the carpet and still clung to the vile wheel on which the sofa moved. Oh, you idiot, Bertie, said the signora, seeing what had been done and what were to be the consequences. Idiot, re-echoed Mrs Prudy, as though the word were not half strong enough to express the required meaning. I'll let him know. And then, looking round to learn at a glance the worst, she saw that at present... It behoved her to collect the scattered debris of her dress. Bertie, when he saw what he'd done, rushed over the sofa and threw himself on one knee before the offended lady. His object, doubtless, was to liberate the torn lace from the caster, but he looked as though he were imploring pardon from a goddess. Unhand it, sir, said Mrs Prudy. From what scrap of dramatic poetry she'd extracted the word cannot be said, but it must have rested on her memory and now seemed opportunely dignified for the occasion. I'll fly to the looms of the fairest to repair the damage if you'll only forgive me, said Ethelbert, still on his knees. Unhand it, sir, said Mrs Prudy, with redoubled emphasis and all but furious wrath. This allusion to the fairies was a direct mockery and intended to turn her into ridicule. So at least it seemed to her. Unhand it, sir, she almost screamed. It's not me, it's the accursed sofa, said Bertie, looking imploringly into her face and holding up both his hands to show he was not touching her belongings, but still remaining on his knees. Hereupon, the signora laughed, not loud, but yet audibly, and as the tigress, bereft of her young, will turn with equal anger on any within her reach, so did Mrs Prudy turn upon her female guest. Madam, she said, and it is beyond the power of prose to tell of the fire which flashed from her eyes. The signora stared her full in the face for a moment, and then, turning to her brother, said playfully, Bertie, you idiot, get up. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I know a limerick about a chaise long. A wannabe star from Hong Kong spent hours upon a chaise long. She hoped that this posture might win her an Oscar, but sadly it seems she was Wong. 
that was written by that most prolific of poets, Anon. Hmm. Phil has a furniturial poem by a more recognised author, Edward Lear. I do. It's called The Table and the Chair. Said the table to the chair, You can hardly be aware how I suffer from the heat and from chilblains on my feet. If we took a little walk, we might have a little talk. Pray let us take the air, said the table to the chair. Said the chair unto the table, Now you know we are not able. How foolishly you talk when you know we cannot walk. Said the table with a sigh, It can do no harm to try. I've as many legs as you. Why can't we walk on two? So they both went slowly down and walked about the town with a cheerful bumpy sound as they toddled round and round. And everybody cried as they hastened to their side, See, the table and the chair have come out to take the air. But in going down an alley to a castle in a valley, they completely lost their way and wandered all the day, till to see them safely back they paid a ducky quack and a beetle and a mouse who took them to their house. Then they whispered to each other, "'Oh, delightful little brother, what a lovely walk we've taken. Let us dine on beans and bacon.' So the ducky and the little brownie mousy and the beetle dined and danced upon their heads till they toddled to their beds.
Meredith McCracken again there, playing Eric Satie's famous Genopody number no. 1, a piece apparently inspired by ancient Greek dancers, drawings of whom one often finds used as decorations on ancient Grecian urns. Now, this may be a potty question, Pippa, but what's a Grecian urn? Oh, no. About no. 10 bob a week, oh, I, I think, okay. is the answer okay. to that. Enough, enough. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have any Grecian urns in my home, but we do have what looks like a Chinese ceramic vase. And a couple of weeks ago, I was in my kitchen talking to someone who knows about antiques. Auctioneer Philip Serrell from BBC's Flog It, Bargain Hunt and Antiques Road Trip has a sale room in Malvern and happens to be a family friend of ours having been to school and played first 11 cricket with my husband at the Royal Grammar School in Worcester. Back in 1999, I was left some furniture and effects by my aunt who had recently passed away. One of the pieces was a fairly unremarkable chest of drawers. I knew it was considered a family heirloom, and whilst I knew it was very old and potentially quite valuable, I didn't know much about it, so Phil offered to come round and make an assessment. True to his word, he gave it the once-over, and I was told it was a Queen Anne walnut chest of drawers, made in this country, and he considered it would be a valuable piece to discerning collectors. We were just about to head into the kitchen for a cup of tea, actually I suspect more likely a beer, when his eyes alighted upon a piece of Chinese porcelain that was sitting on the fireplace hearth. This was one of the sundry effects that had also come my way from my late aunt. It was one of those ubiquitous blue and white pottery vases, standing about a foot high, and at the time sporting a homemade 1960s light fitting that rested rather precariously in its neck. Phil asked if he could pick it up and look it over. After examining it, he said, pretty casually, Well, this isn't really my field of expertise, but you just never know with Chinese pottery. It can be a very good fake, worth 50p, or the real deal, worth thousands. But until you've had this properly valued, I really wouldn't leave it on the floor. Before he got into the whole broadcasting thing, Philip had been a teacher, so I asked him why he prefers antiques. Basically, I was a dreadful teacher. Um, I went to Loughborough, qualified as a PE teacher and taught PE and geography and it dawned on me after about eight weeks that the children um, knew more about geography than I did and I wasn't particularly well equipped to teach in PE and um, I jumped ship thereby saving a whole generation from a paucity of geography lessons. (laughs) My father kept on at me to get a job and I come from an agricultural background and I'd sort of been to farm sales with my father and I don't know where it came from but I suddenly announced one day that I'm going to be an auctioneer and lo and behold here I am still learning. So you didn't actually grow up with a love of antiques or furniture? For me, it isn't antiques that don't do it. it. It's the association of something. So whilst I can see a chair as being a lovely chair, I'm far more interested in whose bum sat on it rather than what the chair is. So, do you know, it's that association. Yeah. It's, it's what it does, um, where it's been. It tells a story. It's got a passport. And, and that's what I love about my job. What was the most favourite piece of furniture that you've ever come across, perhaps, and sold? I went to see a farmer. I went out to his house and he told me about his Elizabethan refectory table that he'd inherited. And, and when I got there, it was indeed Elizabethan, but unfortunately the second and not the first. So 
it, its value was, instead of being thousands of pounds, was a few hundred quid. And as I was leaving, he said to me, um, I've got this other um, old table out in the potting shed. Um, if you want to have a look at it, because we're going to burn it if it's no good. And I went and had a look at it. And it was a console table. And it dated to 1745 or thereabouts. The same table was in Hampton Court Palace, was in the Queen's collection. And we kind of had the pair to it. But there was no top. There was just four gilt legs. And we put that for auction. And I think it made, I don't know, 20 or 21 thousand pounds just for four legs. And, but the lovely story was that his wife, and this is a great tactile thing, said that this, this console table, it had a replacement marble top on it. And his wife used to think it was fantastic for making pastry on. Oh, that's amazing. Gosh. <laughs> Have you had any customers interested in antiques who are visually impaired? I don't think so. But the great thing about antiques is that they can be so tactile, so you don't have to see it to appreciate it. And um, I kind of, if you can touch wood and it's got a lovely warm glow to it, and you can appreciate the form of something. Uh, And so I I would encourage a lot of your listeners to to, um, just try and find something that, that they really enjoy associating with, whether it be glassware. Um, There's nothing better than drinking vintage port out of an 18th century class. I can recommend it to them. I can imagine that if you have a love of furniture and artefacts, it must be very difficult to stop yourself from buying things all the time. Do you curb that desire? Um, You you tend to curb the desire because I've got an ever-changing collection of other people's possessions that come into my sale room and I keep them for three months and then they get sold. But I handled something today that I would love to own. It's a teapot made out of creamware which is like a, a creamy coloured porcelain. And it was made in about 1765, 1770. So it survived, I don't know, 250, 60 years. It's in mint condition. But the thing that I love about it is the fact that if, if you go to a museum or if you see an object or feel an object, a lot of people tend to look at it through today's um, eyes. And I think what you need to do is try and imagine what it was like to have made something. For example... We're in Worcester, and Worcester porcelain started to be made in 1751. And if you think in 1751, how long it would have taken you to get to London, perhaps by a stagecoach, it might have taken a day or two days. There was no national health. There was running sewer throughout the streets. Your young six-year-old child would have been shoved up a chimney to clean it in a factory. And if you think of all these things, and then you think of the wares that were produced between well at the Worcester factory between 1750 and 1780 or 90 you know it's incredible it's absolutely incredible with our sort of increasingly disposable society where do you see um the antiques trade going and and do you think that there will be an enduring appeal for antique furniture you remember that antiques the true definition of antiques is something that's 100 years old so in 100 years time that might be something that's been made today you've got to look at things that are Um, that have been thrown away in huge quantities and have been life-changing. So I think that mobile phones, for example, in 100 years' time, early mobile phones, early technology, early computers, I think they'll be hugely valuable because they're the biggest influence on our life. Isn't that sad? It's tragic. But I think they will be. Even now, 
early technology, early computers are worth a lot of money. So beautiful pieces of furniture will end up on bonfires? No, I don't think so. I, I think the thing to remember is that good things will always be good things. Um, and the antiques trade in the past has sold a lot of things for antiques that might not have been the finest quality in the world, but they were old. Uh, and, I, and I think that if you've got something that's really, really good, it will always be really, really good. So if you've got a table that's worth ten or twenty thousand pounds, it's always going to be a good thing, and it will always be sought after. So do you think that there will continue to be a market in this country, or do you think that actually a lot of the really quality items will end up going abroad? When I started in this business, we were quite insular in that people who bought in my sale room 30, 40 years ago live within a 30-mile radius of Malvern or Worcester. Whereas now, I sell to people in Adelaide, Albuquerque, Hong Kong, all over the world through the internet. So the world is a much, much smaller place. So I think that our tastes become much more cosmopolitan. And I think that, um, you know, it's much more far-reaching. And I think that, um, as I said, I think the good things will always be good things. You can't, a good thing doesn't suddenly become a bad thing. Philip Serrell, thank you very much. It's been absolutely my pleasure. Philip was saying how he's most interested in the stories that furniture can tell us about the lives of its previous owners, like in Mr Blini, you remember, which Jane read for us earlier. But suppose your furniture really could talk. We present Family, a mini-drama written especially for us by John Stanbury that looks into just that possibility. And listen out at the end for a cameo performance by two voices that you'll probably recognise. do with a nice cup of tea when I've put these things away. Ow! Oh, you little... Sorry. Why couldn't we have had a drawer with a proper handle? You and your fancy design ideas. We, we weren't long married when you built this kitchen. All those years... <laughs> Something to remember you by, I suppose. Oh, that hurts. I said I was sorry. What? Sorry. About your finger. <gasps> Who, who's there? Sorry for scaring you. Where are you? I've got a knife. No, you haven't. I have, though. Several. Where are you? And spoons. What? And forks. And a turkey baster. And a potato peeler. And a tea strainer. Though I don't know why, because you only use tea bags these Shut days. Shut up! Shut up! What's going on? Who are you? Where are you? Here. In the drawer? No, Edith. Not in the drawer. Then... I am the drawer. Hello, Edith. Draw calling. Are you receiving me? Over. I said... I heard what you said. How, how, how are you doing that? 
Is somebody... Where... Who are you? I told you. You're talking to the kitchen drawer. <gasps> Sorry about your finger. Steady, Edith. Steady. You're tired from the shopping. It, it's nothing. Nothing. Furniture doesn't talk. Have another pill. Oh, you, you don't want to take too many of those, Edith. I can see you're scared, but there's nothing to be afraid of. I'm not going to hurt you. Well... Not unless you catch your finger in my door. I don't understand. How? We watch out for you, Edith, every day. We care for you. We know you as well as you know us. What's going on? Who are you? Us? We're your furniture, Edith. Your chairs and tables, your cupboards and drawers, your bookcase your bed. Me? I'm your bathroom cabinet. You don't need any more pills, Edith. You're okay. Put them back. All right. There now. I think you deserve that cup of tea. So how many, I mean, do you all, can you all hear me? Yes, very well. This is a lot to take in. I'm not sure I've ever, ever come across this sort of thing before. Most people don't realise. They don't talk to us. They just use us every day. But you, you're only a toaster. You're all only things. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't say that. We have a life too, you know. We have feelings just like you. Well, I, I suppose so. And we know things. Know things? Like what? Like you keep the spare room made up in case your brother's little girl visits you. She's not a little girl anymore. She's almost 50. But she's family. All the family I have left. <sighs> I don't know why I bother, though. She won't be coming all the way here from Seattle just to see me, will she? This morning you bought a cake. Who's the cake for, Edith? How many of you are there? All of us. The whole lot. From the hat stand in the hall... To the coal scuttle in the cellar. From the piano in the parlour mm. to the plant pot on the patio. The writing desk reads your letters. And I bet your bed could tell a few stories too. And you can stop that. I don't think I'm feeling very well. I'm going up for a nap. Oh, tell my alarm clock to wake me in a couple of hours, would you? I think she's getting the hang of this. Mm. 
They put me next to this Ottoman, but honestly, I couldn't understand a word he said. And as it me about curtains, she find it all soft. Stop! Take anti macassars well, for I our thought, Kevin, I thought for a light bulb, you're not very bright. I don't know, more like a Welsh undresser, if you ask me. Has been a chaise longer than I have. How's your finger, Edith? <gasps> Whatever time is it? It's about three in the afternoon. You said a couple of hours. Oh, no. Surprise! Happy birthday! What? Happy, Happy birthday, birthday to you! Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday, dear Edith! Happy birthday to you! Hip hip! Hooray! Hip hip! Hooray! Hip hip! Thank you. Thank you. How did you know? You bought a cake. <gasps> Such a lovely surprise. You're so kind, all of you. That's what family are for, Edith. That's what family are for. One of the neighbours alerted us. Hadn't seen her for several days. What he meant was weeks. She's been dead for weeks. The doctor said probably six or seven. Pathology will tell us for definite. Did their family ever go round? She didn't have any family, not now. There's a niece lives abroad, no one else. She was quite alone, poor thing. Neighbours? Friends? Well, it took the neighbours six weeks to realise they hadn't seen her. As for friends, well, she never spoke to anyone. She was able enough physically, shopped at the supermarket, but, you know, automatic checkout, no human contact. No, I don't think she had any friends, no one to talk to. Probably never had a conversation from one month to the next. Are we contacting her niece, was it? Yeah, we've been in touch. Said her aunt was as batty as a cricket bag. Oh, charming. You can speak to her if you need to. Same surname. First name's Alexa. In Family by John Stanbury. Edith was played by Pauline Beale. The Police Officer by Phil Lee and The Social Worker by Jane Fairs. Other parts were taken by members of the Worcester Talking Newspaper and Pauline Beale. Well, that's about it for this month. We'll be back with another magazine in February with the overarching theme of Bridges. But for now, it's cheerio from Catherine. Goodbye. Phil. Goodbye. Jane. Goodbye. And from me, Pippa. Goodbye. Goodbye.